My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is the Mission Innovation Podcast. See, the searching for my own uh, biases to be confirmed reveals that your ego is still center stage, that you are still the center of reference. You are the reference point. Do I like it? Do I agree with it? Do I prefer it? A spiritual master would say to you, who cares whether you like it? (laughs) Richard Rohr is a globally recognized ecumenical teacher who comes from the tradition of Christian mysticism. He has been called one of the most popular spirituality authors and speakers in the world. Father Rohr is a Franciscan priest and founder of the Center for Action and Contemplation in Albuquerque, New Mexico. An author of over 30 books on spirituality, he joins us in conversation on the spiritual path of being fully grounded and authentic at work. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is the Mission Innovation Podcast. Richard, it's a pleasure to have you join us. You have been looking at the interplay between spirit, living an authentic life, and our work life for some time now. What would you say is the spiritual task or path for someone at work? As you know, our uh, center here in New Mexico is called the Center for Action and Contemplation. And uh, our very name was trying to address the question you're asking. How do we make work or occupation or job, whatever you want to call it, not a secular Uh, occupation, but uh, the place where we put it together. And most of us weren't trained that way. We saw action as separate, and then we'd go to church or to a spiritual gathering of some sort. And uh, it it kept us pretty schizophrenic, if I can use that word, uh, split in our understanding of spirituality. We thought we needed rural, idyllic retreat houses or nature to be spiritual. And that just can't be true. <laughs> the, the real magic, the real mystery is to, uh, to be fully involved in what we have to do, but from a centered place, a grounded place, a loving place. Now that takes work. You have to practice it much of your life to get natural at it. Uh, But that's our goal. Knowing the workshops and retreats that you offer, when you meet people at those events, what are the types of questions that come up about being an authentic person at the workplace? Well, I think the most common one is, what do I do with my racing mind, with my entire life that is goal-oriented, And then that's pretty much gets multiplied at work because there you're being paid to meet goals. And so you you feel an either further obligation. And in a real sense, uh, I'm not trying to uh, push for non-productivity, but uh, to, to be spiritually centered, you have to in some way let go of the primacy of goal or product or uh, effect. 
Now, I know that sounds dangerous to an employer. They say, well, I want, I'm hiring them because I want good effect. But I guess my trust would be that if we can teach people what to do with that racing, negative, accusing mind, whatever form it takes each day, uh, that they're going to be much more productive in the long run. Uh, you really have to, on some level, I'm not saying all levels, on some level, let go of outcomes. Because outcomes rushes you into the future and very often the, the critical mind. And that's not what we're seeking. We're seeking a mind that precedes problem solving, that is content with the person in front of me, the task in front of me, and therefore can do it from a, a more conscious place, a more loving place, a more choiceful place. So I, I walked around your, your good question, but what I'm saying is much of it has to do with mind control, mindfulness. And uh, most of us at this point in history have to be trained how to do that. It, it doesn't come naturally. That's interesting. Many authors and speakers from very different perspectives point to the fact that our biased lenses, our narrowed focus, our inability to step back and look at the whole picture, get in the way and blind us from what is right in front of us. Well, thank you. Again, you're leading forward very well. You know, we call that shadow boxing. We call that uh, recognizing the negative. In the ancient traditions, they would have called it fighting demons. Maybe we wouldn't put it in that kind of language, but the battle is the same. That, uh, as you well said, we all have agendas preconditioning, woundedness, uh, angers, judgments readily in place. And they're mostly unrecognized. And if you leave them unrecognized, they pretty much dictate what's going to get in and what's going to be eliminated. And we see this in our American political conversation today, to be perfectly honest, that it seems like a high percentage of our people aren't capable of much self-critique or self-observation, if you'd rather put it that way. And without a certain degree of self-critique, self-observation, you can presume that your agenda, your private agenda, and frankly, your personal woundedness, and we all have it, areas where we've become defensive, reactionary, because of past experiences. And those grids are so in place if we don't recognize them. Uh, once you see them for what they are, which usually takes humility and honesty, uh, they lose, I'm going to say, 60% of their power. Uh, you know, we used to say in traditional moral theology, evil depends upon disguise. It has to disguise itself as good, as virtue. But once you see it for what it is, 
that in fact that's coming out of my fear, that's coming out of my egocentricity, that's coming out of my relationship with my father or my mother or my church, uh, all of which could be good things too. But when they uh, create a, a debilitating or reactionary effect, it isn't so good. I hope that makes sense. It does. It reminds me of the title of a well-known book on mindfulness and meditation called Wherever You Go, There You Are. There you are. Yeah. <laughs> I say how you do anything is how you do everything. Uh, and therefore to watch quietly, compassionately, uh, how you do one thing is pretty much an indicator of how you do life in general. And I'll tell you, for me, that is a daily humiliation because I teach the contemplative mind, but by temperament, I'm a type A personality. I'm a, a can-do person. <laughs> and that might be a virtue, but it's also a major liability. And I have to check the liability part. That term that you just used, daily humiliation, I understand you seek a daily humiliation. Coaches speak about leadership. They might say it a little differently. They say seek mistakes and failure because it's only through those that one moves forward or improves. Is that what you mean by daily humiliation? Yeah, we're, we're saying the same thing. Absolutely. Do I agree with them? That we grow through our mistakes. We do not grow through our successes. Our successes feel good. They give us a sense of dignity and accomplishment. But in terms of wisdom for the soul, not very much. <laughs> uh, that's, that's the great uh, counterintuitive message of all in-depth spirituality. But it, it takes us a while to get there. This seems to be such an area of common ground. Could you give us a sense of how much an area of common ground it is among various spiritual paths and traditions? Yeah. Uh, well, let's try a few of them. Well, I'll start with my own, uh, the Christian, in my case, Catholic Christianity. We call it the Paschal Mystery. I know that's a big phrase, but it means that death and resurrection are two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. Uh, Buddhism called it facing our emptiness uh, and seeing that all things were empty. In other words, passing away, dying, everything dies, everything passes and not to be shocked by that or disappointed by that. Some people in the recovery movement speak of it as a spirituality of imperfection, uh, that first step of powerlessness. Uh, it, it's amazing that with this being so constant in the spiritual traditions of the world, uh, even Judaism spoke of exodus and exile as the places where the Hebrew people were deepened and informed. But we created what we call a prosperity gospel, a, a gospel that would more fit 
our American culture about succeeding and being moral and superior and saved and right. And, oh, this just put us in a terribly spiritually competitive place where the ego remained fully in control, fully in charge. Uh, And I must say, this is very common. (laughs) So uh, we've got our work to do, all the spiritual traditions, because this is not where the ego wants to go. The ego wants to be separate. It wants to be superior. It doesn't want to die. (laughs) And yet that's what all the great spiritual masters are, are describing, admittedly, with different language. It seems an area of common ground among these traditions is they are asking us to walk into situations with our eyes wide open. As we try in workplace to not let biases or narrow lenses distract us, what are some of the practices that great spiritual traditions offer us? Well, I have to say this. I've been a priest almost 50 years now, and so I I think it's based on observation and 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 cross-culturally. I taught in 50 different countries over the years. And again and again, I would see the same patterns in, in Sufi Islam, in Hasidic Judaism, in mystical Christianity, in much of mainline Buddhism. You'll find that there's always some form of meditation, contemplation taught some ability to live contentedly in silence. Uh, In our extroverted culture, that doesn't come naturally. And now that we can have earbuds and uh, (laughs) noise all the time, it's really scary for most people. But I don't know a single higher level, if I can call it that, spiritual tradition that doesn't encourage some degree of chosen silence and even some degree of chosen solitude, preferably in nature. Uh, We live in such urban settings now that we don't read the spiritual texts of the ages where Jesus, Buddha, they all go into the natural world where uh, we live in a different cathedral than uh, structures built of stone by human beings. So inside of that, if you spend long enough and quiet enough, I'll go so far as to say, you will know what you need to know. (laughs) I don't really care what your vocabulary is, but you'll know the great mystery and that you're connected to it, a very small part of it, and that it's good. And that even this natural world grows constantly, moves constantly through cycles of loss and renewal, loss and renewal, loss and renewal. So we stop being so shocked by failure and death. I I hope that doesn't sound too radical. It isn't. It's it's about as traditional as you get. But we've pretty much fashioned 
spirituality again to fit our extroverted, can-do, success-oriented culture. So I know to a lot of people this sounds uh, unnecessary or, or scary or radical. I don't think it is. It's so simple, in fact, that it's hard to teach. <laughs> it's almost amazing. It, it's so simple, it's hard to teach. Richard, you have offered a grounding framework which says that the spiritual path is in continual movement from order to disorder to reorder. Could you comment on that framework? See, most of us were not trained to expect and even welcome the second movement, disorder. To us, it appears like a mistake or an error are an unfortunate delay uh, with no expectation that this is in fact necessary. Let me backtrack a little to what I call the first box of order. If you stay in your world of largely self-created order too long, you become in love with the order itself. You become what we call a control freak, and your preoccupation is the maintaining of that explanation, that sequencing, that chronology, that uh, the, it's basically the way I like things to be. And a lot of that comes from your childhood conditioning, uh, the family you were raised in, the church that trained you, all of which is a great way to start. But again, it's only a great way to start. It isn't a good way to continue. After a while, again, to use a not-so-kind word, you become a control freak. You don't love life or what's in front of you for what it is. You constantly want to get back to this supposed ideal order where God is to be found. Uh, so into the midst of this order, there always comes certain as the dawn. Uh, mistake, exception, failure. Our word for it in Christianity was sin. <laughs> Imperfection, woundedness, bothersome people, terrible politics, horrible theology, <laughs> something that just throws a wrench in the whole works. How do you deal with that? Um, your marriage falls apart, you lose your job, pick your choice. It, it's going to happen. And the gospel is saying it's got to happen. There is no nonstop flight from the first box of order to the third box of reorder. You must go through disorder, or what Christianity would call the cross. Um, this is is the path. And most people, if they're even a little bit honest, realize it's already happened to them, but they thought their job was to stay in the first box at all costs. So I put it, and this is an oversimplification, but some degree of truth, I think, 
people who call themselves conservative tend to be trapped in the first box of order. People who call themselves progressive, academic, literal, liberal, they tend to get trapped in the second box, (laughs) almost a cynical love of disorder, a dismissal of all norms and commandments and institutions and loyalty to anything except myself. Uh, So you see that both of us have our traps, and there are two different ways to avoid the third box. And a, a rigid, egocentric, progressive person is just as stupid as a egocentric, rigid, conservative person. It's, it's both the same game, just with a different disguise. So we've both got to be taught how to trust. I'm just going to put it this way not getting my own way, not always being in charge, where I have to say to the moment, to the person in front of me, it is what it is what it is. Without my label, without my categorizing, without my judging, without my critiquing. If you're not at all separated from your own egocentricity. You won't do that. You can't do that. So you see why Jesus said you have to lose yourself to find yourself. Uh, This is pretty foundational to the spiritual journey. So thank you for, uh, you must have heard some of my stuff on the three boxes. I, I teach this as foundational in our living school here. Order, disorder, reorder. And let me add at the end, you don't just learn this once. As many times as God has led me through this pattern of exodus and exile, to use the Jewish words, uh, I still have to learn it again. I don't want it to be true. (laughs) I fight disorder. You know, I personally am from a a German farm family in Kansas. Believe me, I was raised with order. And it served me well as a starting place. But I had to grow up and learn how to live in the world as it is, not as my Kansas upbringing, if you'll forgive me, told me it had to be. I found that I really didn't love God or reality. I loved myself which was a very humiliating recognition. As we think of an unknown future, are there practices you could share with us that people find helpful when facing that unknown future? It's funny you'd ask that. You know, right today, our team is up in Denver uh, live streaming the memorial service of Father Thomas Keating who died a few weeks ago, he gave very simple methods. And I remember when I first met him 20-some years ago, he used to teach a most simple exercise. We call it the boat exercise. It sounds almost childish, but it's revolutionary in its effects if you're willing to practice it. 
He says, picture your stream of consciousness as a, a, a flowing river in front of you or a flowing stream. And every little thought or emotion that tries to capture your attention, just picture it as a boat. Don't hate it. Don't reject it, but name it and let go of it. Resentment toward my wife, anger at my job, uh, uh, sexual infatuation, whatever wants to capture my mind or my emotions. Again, don't condemn yourself for having such a, a thought pass through, but do learn to let go. Letting go is an exercise that is first learned in the mind and the heart. Uh, without it, you always have an addictive society. If there is not training in letting go, you create the kind of addictive world we have today. And the most common addiction, the universal addiction, I talk about this in my book, Breathing Underwater, uh, is to our way of thinking, to my way of thinking. That's universal. So Tom, Thomas said, just keep letting go, letting go. Every thought, every emotion that tries to possess you and make you indulge it. And what will happen, I know it now to be true, not every day, but now and then, if you're faithful to such letting go, your stream will clear out. Where That's what we call pure consciousness. Where I'm not conscious of any object of thought, but just pure, open horizon consciousness. Here's my statement at that point. If God wants to get to you, and I believe God always does, God's chances of getting through to you are much better at that point because finally you and your agenda and your anger and your fear are out of the way. So uh, let me add one more thing. Uh, don't You won't succeed at this for long because the kinds of feelings and thoughts you've been indulging for years, they'll come around for round two. Uh, Thomas Keating used to teach this so humorously and say, well, you, didn't you see me? Here I am. You always resented your wife before when I wanted you to resent her. How come you let go of me? Those are your compulsive patterns. And if you always need to put other people down or you need to always play the victim, you'll start seeing those patterns. My God, I play the victim every hour. It's my modus operandi. And we all have one. We call it our MO. Huh? Uh, until you see your MO, the way you process your information, you will be trapped in that MO forever. All you need to do is watch our political gatherings in this country. People's responses are totally knee-jerk, childish. Uh, you can tell there's, there's no detachment from my feelings and my resentments and my angers and my hurts. So use the boat exercise. 
It's so simple, but I promise you it works. Because you will recognize that now and then your stream of addictive thoughts clears out. And that's the moment where you can know you fall to a deeper level, maybe only momentarily. But there you don't have anything to change, anything to control, anything to fix, anything to make right. This is pure consciousness. This is contemplation. You know, Richard, when you speak about needing to be right, it reminds me of language we use in the workplace, like the term confirmation bias, meaning how we seek out only the information that confirms our own point of view. I see myself do it. Yes. It's pointed to as a barrier to leadership or decision-making. See, the searching for my own uh, biases to be confirmed reveals that your ego is still center stage, that you are still the center of reference. You are the reference point. Do I like it? Do I agree with it? Do I prefer it? A spiritual master would say to you, who cares whether you like it? <laughs> and, and we are now victims of our preferences. Um, we've decided white-skinned people are better than people of color. And in a lot of people, that response is so immediate, so automatic, that they really don't know that they're racists. <laughs> they really don't. Remember what I said, evil depends upon disguise. It has to look like good. They've got some biases about being better educated or not so loud or my religion or whatever else it might be, and they think that's the reason. But it constellates into a, a blockage. Basically, it's a resistance to love. That's what it always comes down to. Whenever you recognize that the flow of love is not moving through you, but you've blocked it, you resist it, you oppose it, that's really the core meaning of sin. And in that sense, most of us are sinners several times a day, if not more, when we just immediately block the flow of union toward a brother or sister because of their race, their sexual identity, their handicap, their obesity, uh, their religion. Pick your poison. <laughs> They're all poisons. Richard, you offer another framework, a way of thinking that helps us place our work in the bigger picture of our life. Could you comment on your framework of falling upward? Well, you know, I know this is some way oversimplified, but I wrote a book about 10 years ago called Falling Upward. Uh, it still continues to be the most constant seller. And it surprised me. I, at the time, I was happy with what I wrote, but I never thought it would catch on the way it seems to have because the analysis is in some ways oversimplified. I was building on Carl Jung's phrase that there's basically two halves of life. Because, you know, we all know people who speak of eight stages, nine stages. 
uh, and two seemed a bit oversimplified. But uh, the response to the book has told me that it must be naming something that's real for people. And here's a, a quick oversimplified summary. The first half of life is the game we all have to play to grow up. It's building your own ego structure, your own container, as I call it in the book, your own occupation, your own persona, your own role. You know, I went off and joined the Franciscans. I became ordained as a priest. I started seeing my name on books and a speaker at conferences. So this gave me a, you know, a certain sense of uh, self-esteem, importance. Uh, you've got to have that. You can't take that away from a kid. It doesn't always have to be as showy as mine, but you got to be on the starting five of the basketball team, or you got to know that you can arm wrestle or, <laughs> or something. But here's the rub that if you over-identify with that very success agenda, I'm good because of this, I'm right because of that, I'm important because I'm a priest, the very thing that built you up by the second half of life starts destroying you. And so if the first half of life is the container the second half of life is the finding of the contents that the container was meant to hold. Now, our religious word for that was the discovery of your soul, <laughs> your true self, your real identity. What am I at my foundation and core? What was I uh, before I was born in the eyes of God? you know, before my occupation, before my role. That's the naked self. That's the true self. And you find a hankering to discover that in various ways, usually in your 30s. No, late 30s, more in your 40s, really. You don't know that's what you're seeking, but very often it's true. And it's almost like the first task that you took so seriously has to begin to disappoint you, to bore you, to recognize, you know, this isn't me. This is just a game I'm playing. This is just a mask I put on. The word persona means mask in Greek. Uh, that's a great discovery. It's a very painful one because usually that mask is how we got married and how we got our job and how we made our money. Uh, so you see why Jesus tells the first disciples to leave their family. I'm not encouraging that. It's not my point. And their occupation, their nets, in the case of these fishermen. Because very often those early occupations, early roles, define us and we never go to the second half of our own life. So I call that whole process, and that became the name of the book, Falling Upward. That a certain kind of falling is necessary to the human journey. Carl Jung put it very well. 
He said, where you stumble and fall, there you will find pure gold. I think he's right. Thanks, everyone. I'm Kevin Murphy. This is the Mission Innovation Podcast.